So the reading this evening is from John chapter 11, starting at the beginning. And that is on page 1017-17 in the Bibles. So it's 1017. And it's from 1 through to verse 44. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Martha, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been out with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, 
my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you, Joe. That's a wonderful reading. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And um, Lord, I pray that your um, words will be my words tonight. And Lord, that our ears will be open to everything that you have to say to us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Tim said, my name's Cara, and um, I'm one of the curates here. And tonight we're continuing our series on John 8, The Truth Will Set You Free. And we're using the wonderful um, passage about Lazarus to kind of unpack um, our theme a bit more. So we've looked at culture, identity, purpose, and tonight I'm going to try my best to unpack, unpack the vast and complicated theme of suffering. Now, um, just a little bit of a disclaimer here. Um, I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm on my own journey with this subject, and so these are my reflections, really, on where I've got to with it. And I'd be delighted to continue unpacking the subject over a coffee or down at the pub um, after the service. So before we go on into the big question of why suffering, the first thing our passage highlights is that suffering is part of our world. There was suffering then, and there is suffering now. Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, was ill, it says in verse 1, and Mary and Martha are clearly distraught. Martha says, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. Friends of Jesus are not immune from suffering. We all get ill, and sometimes we don't just get ill, we die. Suffering exists. Even for friends and followers of Jesus, you and me. And um, on the 15th of July this year, I had a phone call from a really good friend of mine. And I'll never forget 
where I was or what I was doing. And it's funny um, when things happen. I remember where I was, and I'm sure you can, the day the Twin Towers um, was hit and the day that Gren Grenfell Tower was burning to the ground. Anyway, this call was to tell me that a very good friend and mentor had been killed in a cycling accident. She was 54. She was a very keen cyclist and all-round adventurer. She came round a bend too wide, hit a wall, and was thrown off her bike. She was airlifted to hospital, but there was nothing they could do. And she was a wonderful and inspirational woman. She had a vibrant faith, which she shared with everyone she met. She has left a gaping hole in the lives of many. She left three wonderful teenage girls and a husband. And the weeks following this for me were really tough. I kept crying every time I thought of her. I kept thinking about all the things I wish I had said and done. I kept um, hearing her northern accent in my head and how I wish I'd had the opportunity to have one last cup of tea with her to tell me how much she meant to me and so many others. Now these kind of things go on every day. People lose loved ones in accidents. But this particular tragedy catapulted me into my own time of big questions. Why God? Why? Why did this happen? What does it all mean? Why did it happen to her? God, where are you in this? I was having my own Martha moment. If only you had been here. Now I know I'm not alone in asking these questions. The issue of suffering is one of the most frequently raised objections to the Christian faith. We're constantly confronted with suffering. Whether it's bereavement, sickness, handicap, broken relationships, an unhappy marriage, involuntary singleness, poverty, persecution, rejection, depression, loneliness, unemployment, injustice, temptation, disappointment. The list is endless. No human being is immune. And my dad, who I mentioned um, a few weeks ago, is the most Christian atheist I know. He never met his real dad because my nan was pregnant with him when his dad's ship hit a mine off France during the war. And my dad unconsciously wrestles with this subject of suffering so much that he just cannot accept that a loving God would allow that to happen. And therefore, he can't bring himself to have a faith in a God who would do such a thing. He too unconsciously cries out, if only you had been there. But would God do such a thing? Well, no, suffering was never part of God's original plan. In Genesis, it says that God made the world and it was good. Evil, suffering and death have no rightful place in God's world. Michael Lloyd says that suffering is part of the story, not part of the setup. It's part of the process, not part of the purpose. It was not intended. It is an alien condition which God did not create, but we have invited it into existence. 
You see, there was no suffering in the world before humanity rebelled against God. Suffering entered the world because Adam and Eve sinned. And God allowed sin to enter the world because he loves us and wanted to give us free will. He wanted to give human beings the choice of whether to love or not to love. He could have made us like robots, but he is not that sort of God. He is not a control freak. He made us relational and for relationship. He made us real people making real decisions that affect real people. And given this choice, we have chosen to break God's laws since the beginning. And the result has been suffering. So does this mean that when we suffer, we have done something wrong and it's God's punishment for that sin? Well, no, it's not that simple. David Watson, a church leader who died of cancer at the age of 50, says, this kind of thinking is ridiculous and utterly alien to a God of infinite love and mercy, as we so clearly see in Jesus. There are a number of reasons for suffering. Some suffering is the result of our own sin. We can be selfish, greedy, lustful, arrogant, and bad-tempered. And this is just my Sunday. These behaviors can then lead to broken relationships, unhappiness of one form of another. So yes, our sin does cause suffering. But not all suffering is the result of our own sin. Job's friends thought that his suffering was the result of his own sin, but it wasn't. And you can read about that in Job 42, verses 7 to 8. Some suffering is the result of someone else's sin that impacts us. We could lose a parent after they were struck down by a reckless driver, have our pension wiped out by a financial scam just before we retire, if we ever do get to retire. And then there's murder, adultery, theft, sexual abuse, unloving parents, selfishness, unkindness, negligence and neglect. So much suffering is caused by the sin of others and we just happen to be on the receiving end of it. A friend of mine is working for the law firm dealing with the Grenfell fire. She has met and interviewed the victims. She has heard the most heartbreaking stories and has heard how that night turned people's lives upside down. They have faced the most intolerable suffering. When I asked her who she thought was responsible, there was an endless list of possibilities. The fridge manufacturer, the fire brigade, the people who made and fitted the cladding, the council, the call center that took the emergency calls. Who is to blame and who is going to be held to account? Lives lost, vulnerable people suffering at the hands of those who should have known better. Someone's negligence, sin. Then there's a small proportion of suffering that can only be explained as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world, a world where creation has been affected by the sin of human beings. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, thorns and thistles entered the world. Natural disasters are the result of this disorder in creation. So all suffering is the result of sin, either directly as a result of our own sin or someone else's sin, or indirectly, the result of living in a fallen world. It's all sin. 
And it all sounds a bit depressing, doesn't it? And we all could cry out like Martha, if only you had been here. But there's always hope. As lands on the move. You see, God never intended the suffering in the first place. And see, so he will not rest until his beloved world is healed. So he sent Jesus, and in sending Jesus, God stepped into human history. And he is no stranger to suffering. He was born into poverty. As a baby, his family had to flee into exile to avoid Herod. During his brief ministry of teaching and healing, he repeatedly faced opposition and accusation. He was betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, condemned, abandoned by his closest friends, and horrifically and humiliatingly tortured to death. God understands suffering in the most personal way. And his response, in verse 11 it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but I think one of the most powerful. He entered fully into the grief of those around him and wept with them, even though he went on to raise Lazarus from the dead. When John said that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit in verse 38, the Greek word he uses accurately means groan. In other words, Jesus audibly let out a groan from the pit of his stomach. And not just any groan, but one stemming from an angry rage. He was furious. He was enraged. He was angry at evil. He was angry at the distortion that is death. He is angry at what it has done to God's creatures and God's world. He knows that suffering has no valid place there. Jesus was internally in emotional turmoil at the death of his friend. And he is in emotional turmoil because this is not what God intended. It is not how things were ordered. It is not of God. Death is an imposter. So how does God feel about our pain and suffering? He joins us in them and he weeps and he is contorted in his guts with pain about it. So Jesus knows our suffering. He's been there, he's experienced it, and he's with us in it. But it gets better, so much better. There's even more hope. God even uses our suffering. And in verse 4, Jesus said, this illness was not en- will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In the same way that God uses Lazarus' death to display his glory, he also uses our suffering for good, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. There are so many biblical images that can help us understand how God uses our suffering. Firstly, suffering can bring us to Christian maturity. The writer of Hebrews says, Our fathers discipline us for a while 
as they thought best. But God disciplines for our good so that we may share in his holiness. And the writer of Hebrews also points out that no, sorry, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And the writer of Hebrews even highlights that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Also, suffering can make our lives more fruitful. An image used by Jesus is that of the gardener pruning the vine. As the gardener prunes the vine, so God prunes every fruitful branch so that it will be even more fruitful. And that's John 15, verse 2. And then Peter uses the image of a metal worker refining silver and gold. And he writes that his readers may all have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he goes on to explain why God might have allowed it. He says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So suffering can make our lives more fruitful and it refines us. To be clear, God doesn't inflict suffering on us, but he can use it for good and for his glory. Also, and one of my favorite um, stories, um, suffering is never wasted. And we see this in the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50. Joseph's life was anything but peaceful. He suffered rejection by his close family. He was sold into slavery by jealous brothers, thrown into prison in Egypt on false charges. He didn't see his father for years. Joseph knew suffering, yet he remained free of bitterness or regret and served God in the worst of circumstances. And in a final confrontation with his brothers, he says this, you planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. In other words, my suffering has not been wasted. Going back to my friend at her funeral, um, and her, she tried to encourage her sister for years and years and years to do Alpha, and her sister came up to me at the funeral and said, oh, I, better, I better do Alpha then. Um, suffering is not wasted. God uses it. And here in our passage, the suffering is not wasted. Jesus uses Lazarus to glorify God, to show that he can heal, restore, and defeat suffering. From verse 38, it said, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he heard this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet 
wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, Jesus hates suffering so much that he spends his short time in ministry healing people from their suffering because he cares and because that is what God does. He heals, he restores, he overcomes, he defeats. And God does heal today, not always in the manner and the time scale that we want, but he does. But even more supremely, this suffering of Lazarus and his family is used to reveal to the people who Jesus truly is. The onlookers, Mary, Martha, and the Jews who hate Jesus recognize that this man is not just simply a man, but this man is the man who has power over death. He is the healer, the restorer, the overcomer, the one who defeats. This is a man that not only heals, but brings people back from the dead. This is a man who not only deals in resurrection, but he says he is the resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a claim. What qualifies Jesus to say that he is the resurrection and that he can bring good out of bad and that suffering and death is not wasted but can be turned for good? Well, Jesus suffered, but he overcame suffering and death when he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, so will we. We may suffer now, but we have the whole of eternity for him to put it right. Gavin Reed, the um, former Bishop of Maidstone, tells the story of a boy in his congregation who shattered his back falling down the stairs at the age of one and had constantly, consequently been in and out of hospital. Um, and when Gavin interviewed him in church, the boy remarked, God is fair. Gavin stopped him and asked, how old are you? The boy replied, 17. How many years have you spent in hospital? The boy answered, 13 years. He was asked, do you think that is fair? He replied, God's got all of eternity to make it up to me. Now the New Testament is full of promises about how amazing heaven will be. All creation will be restored. Jesus will return to establish a new heaven and new earth. There'll be no more crying, no more pain and suffering. Our frail, decaying, mortal bodies will be changed for a body like Jesus, his resurrected body. We shall be reunited with all those who have died in Christ. And we shall spend all eternity in the presence of the Lord. You see, the suffering we go through now is terrible but temporary. The Christian story is that our lives now are but a fraction of our eternal life we will have in Jesus. No matter how terrible things are, Jesus is not only with us now, but they will fall away and we will receive ultimate healing in the life to come. 
for this time, there are skirmishes and battles still going on. And our job as the church is to bring healing and life to those skirmishes and battles in so far that we're able. But let us never lose sight of the truth that this is not the end. The final chapter has been written and it's described as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God, and they will be my children. Suffering exists, and God never promised that his followers wouldn't suffer. But there's hope. Jesus is with us in our suffering. He uses our suffering. And most importantly, he defeated our suffering. Let's just um, spend a moment in quiet.